0: Welcome back to the Isles Game Report, sponsored by Blue Line Deli and Bagels. This hockey-themed deli just opened at 719 West Jericho and Turnpike in Huntington, New York. Get blue and orange bagels, custom sandwiches like the Slapshot, or my favorite, the Zamboni, and so much more. With curbside pickup and delivery, this is a place that all hockey fans must check out. I got my order in this morning, picked it up, and can't wait to eat it after the show. Joining me as always is Christian Arnold of Islander Insight, and we have a great show today. We'll be discussing some topics, and Christian, we'll start off with this one. Should the Islanders keep Matt Martin, or is Ross Johnson a suitable replacement on that fourth line? Yeah,
1: it's an interesting question, um, because it's one that I think a lot of people have had and will continue to have until uh, you know his contract runs out, or the Islanders, you know, change something up or whatever the case may be. But, I mean, when you look at the Islanders' success, and, I mean, we've talked about and you've written about it uh, when it comes to the fourth line especially. It's the uh, the fact that it's an intact fourth line when we're talking about Casey Sezikis, Matt Martin, and Cal Clutterbuck. And that is the most effective line the Islanders have when it's at full strength. So the idea of of taking Matt Martin out um, and then kind of raising that question of is his contract worth it I, I mean, it's an interesting way to, way to look at it because, I mean, on some teams, maybe Matt Martin isn't on uh, on the NHL roster at all. I mean, I, look what happened in Toronto. And, um, you know, that he kind of lost his space um, as the team kind of morphed and changed under the um, leadership of Kyle Dubas and you know, Brendan Shanahan and whatnot. Um, so I think that certain teams, maybe that doesn't fit. But what the Islanders have and the dynamic that the Islanders have, it's hard to say that his contract isn't worth it just because – when that line is effective, that is essentially the brand of hockey that the New York Islanders need to play to be successful. So in the grand scheme of things, it's it's kind of a big contract what the Islanders gave to Matt Martin. Um, and obviously, what what uh, not what the Islanders gave to Matt Martin, I should say what Toronto gave to Matt Martin, and then the Islanders bringing him back into the fold through a trade. Um, it, it's a lot, but at the same time, I mean, when you take away one piece, and we've seen it, Ross Johnson has been on the ice, and um, to kind of take a spot of one of those three guys, including Matt Martin, I believe, uh, the Islanders at fourth line are, isn't the same. And you're right. They effectively play a very similar style of game. And uh, Ross Johnson, obviously, a little bit younger than Matt Martin. But still, I think Matt Martin's worth the contract that he has and worth the spot that he has, despite the fact that the owners have essentially a similar player and Ross Johnson waiting in the wings to kind of jump in there.
0: Yeah, so Matt Martin's an unrestricted free agent. And for me, the biggest thing is that he's an enforcer, which is a dying breed. And again, like you you mentioned... He went to Toronto. They're all about skill and all that kind of stuff. He didn't. He he did not play a lot with his time there over his two seasons there. He comes back to the Islanders. He's got that fourth line job now. The question is with the money situation, everything going on. Ross Johnson's 26 years old. Matt Martin's 30, and we've seen Ross Johnson get minutes on the second line, top line. Barry Trotz seems to have trust in him. You hear about his skating ability, his awareness, all that kind of stuff. And also, Matt Martin's not the 300 plus hitter. He's been in the past. I think he has two hundred and forty two hits this season. It just goes to show that the only reason to keep Matt Martin would be if you have Suzekis in the middle and Clutterbach on his right. But we saw this year with all the injuries, that really wasn't the case, and it makes Matt Martin not as valuable. It makes Cal Clutterbuck not as valuable. The key piece is Suzekis being there. So I think it's a really great question to decide and that's something that the Islanders are really going to have to think about
1: when you think about it too, the Islanders this is the last year of his contract, right? So this is a decision that the Islanders are eventually going to have they're going to make this offseason whatever this offseason looks like because it's going to vo- be very bizarre um but it's a question now that that the team will have to answer and figure out because Matt Martin is uh, a, as big of a locker room guy as he is has been a presence on the ice for this team currently and in the past but at the same time you're right Ross Johnson is a younger option um and depending on which way the team goes going forward right um, That kind of changed the dynamics. I still would say that he's worth giving him a contract. And maybe Matt Martin understands the situation that the Islanders will likely be in when it comes to renewing his deal, however the case may be with the offseason. And he takes a much more team-friendly guy because he is uh, as big of an Islander through and through as anybody in that locker room. And um, you know, when you think of the New York Islanders and what um, the Islanders organization kind of stands for and embodies... Uh, that is Matt Martin. He's a guy who's embraced the Long Island community. His wife is from Long Island, grew up here uh, in the North Shore. Um, you know, he's moved here to New York full time, I believe. And, um, you know, this is where his family is now. So, uh, you know, for Matt and Martin, it's it's hard to see him not being in an Islander uniform. Even seeing him go to Toronto a couple years ago it was very weird. Understandably, he got a very high contract offer from the Maple Leafs, and it made sense for him to go there financially. But it was a very strange situation. I don't even think the people in Toronto, the fans there, really understood what he meant to the Islanders organization and still means now currently, um, despite the fact that you're right. When you look at his numbers and, and kind of his, his rate of play, maybe some of the thing, numbers aren't as high as they used to be. But still, the effectiveness and I think what he means to this organization off the ice as well as on the ice kind of factors into all of that.
0: I think it'd be a little different story if we were talking about Cal Clutterbuck, who's missed a lot more time with injury over the last couple of years. You look, I mean, Ross Johnson, if Clutterbuck was a free agent, Ross Johnson could easily play right wing on that line. So it just goes to show that Matt Mornin is so much more important than the stats. And we can say that about a lot of players in the Islanders that don't like Josh Bailey, who's been talked about of having a great IQ, you know, but his stats don't really speak to that every time. But I think, I think the Islanders had the money to sign him, it makes sense, but they had to have that fourth line. That's so crucial, and if Matt Martin could still be a part of that, then he's got to be.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting. And and like you said, Ross Johnson, kind of that, that younger, cheaper option too. They already also have him under contract for another two years after this. So, it, I mean, in that situation, it makes sense. But, uh, you know, I think it really comes down to the effectiveness of that fourth line and the fact that, um, you know, how does this team look after this year? What What changes come to it? Um, you know, from a, a management standpoint, as far as personnel on the on the ice.
0: Speaking about contracts, Anders Lee, he signed a seven-year, uh, forty-nine million dollar contract in the summer of twenty nineteen. So, do we think that that contract will be worth it when it's all said and done?
1: Yeah, I mean, that the big the big question is the effectiveness towards the back end of that deal, and I think that was the whole. I mean, you look at a lot of players uh, in the NHL uh, that play a similar style to Anders Lee, and that. Is a big, big question because the the position and the style of play that that Lee plays is kind of that he plays down low in those dirty, gritty areas, and that takes a big toll on your body, right? So you're effectively looking at um, down the line that your play of your rate of play is likely going to diminish at some point, um, especially those last couple of years, because they haven't signed through 2026, I believe, is the end of the contract, because it's 2025-2026 is the last year, and it's also a modified no-trade clause, because um, he has a no-trade clause for the next one, two, three, four, five years, I think, of that seven-year contract, if my math is correct, which would include this year. Um, and I think you get a decent... You get what you want out of him for at least, I would probably say, three or four of those seven years on the deal. And then it becomes... Um, you know, how does he kind of hold up? And I think a good example of that is when you look at Johnny Boychuk, right? Boychuk was this very, you know, I mean, different positions, obviously, but, um, still kind of a similar example when you want to look at New York Islanders is that, um, you know, they play a gritty position. There was a long-term deal and you knew that when you signed him, that when that contract was starting to come towards its end, he wasn't going to be the same player as he was, um, but i think the islanders needed to sign him there's no doubt that they needed to, re- to sign him in and that he got what i would imagine is a fair deal for, for for lee um because obviously he's such a talented player on the ice um you know being the team captain now and you just couldn't afford to let him walk um as you know a second year in a row where you have a captain walk at the end of the yep. contract that would have been brutal um and i think that it, it, it's not a bad it's not a good look around the rest of the league as much as you kind of that shouldn't be a huge part of your decision and how you resign players. But it's certainly in that situation, it doesn't look good to other players when you're trying to prospectively bring them in here, when you have all this other stuff going on around the organization. And then you add another captain leaving for the second year in a row. So um, I think he's worth it. Um, I think that the way he plays on the ice, certainly it was worth it. The leadership skill that he brings to the Islanders locker room, um, again, and kind of how we were talking about that off-the-ice character, too. That's a big thing for the New York Islanders. It was even a big thing under Garth Snow. And I know how much people don't like Garth Snow. But one thing he did do was bring in a lot of good people, good character people to the Islanders organization. And, um, you know, Anders Lee certainly fits that bill, especially as as the team captain. And fits what Barry Trotz and Lou Lamourelle have tried to build um, since they've taken over the helm. So, know, uh, yeah, I think he's worth every penny of that. Obviously, that contract is not going to look great. Toward the end when things start to go downhill a little bit uh, for him. But we'll we'll see what happens. Maybe things don't go as, as, you know, don't trend as negatively as you know we've seen other players have in similar positions as as Lee.
0: Yeah, you make a great point about the leadership aspect. We see the stats and we see the post-game conference. We don't see what goes on in the locker room, outside the locker room, at practice. I mean, I played hockey all my life. I've respected every captain I've had. I'm great friends with all of them. Those are people that you want around. And like you said, if he had left after... Tavares had already left. This would have been just, a – it would have been a laughing stock to see a captain leave back to back years. I think that Andersley had a he had a great year with the forty goals to get that contract. Obviously, that's a little, you know, we look yeah. at it and go, all right, it's one year, forty goals, and he had a down, quote unquote, a down year after that with twenty eight goals, only twenty eight goals. But I think Lee's sort of gotten away from. He goes to the dirtier, but he's not. He He's not that big presence that he was maybe a year or two ago we maybe i don't know if he's a little scared about getting hurt or just whatever case may be i think i think he could get back to scoring 30 plus goals a year if he gets in the front and also it's his teammates around him getting him the puck but we saw a few, like for Ed's points this season we saw times where he'd be behind the net puck battles and those are plays that he usually comes away with and makes a move to the front and this year maybe not as much again so that has to do with everything going on in the rink all that stuff maybe the pressure but i think yeah you look at every long-term deal like you said the boy chuck one that this is something that Towards the final few years, it's probably not going to be good. He'll be in his age 35 season. You don't know how what the injuries are going to look like. You don't know what the wear and tear is going to be. But I think for the contract that he got, seven years, seven million annually, I think it definitely is going to work out. Definitely, again, like you said, negative towards the end, but we'll worry about that when we get to it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I mean negative. I don't want to say negative. Negative I feel like is the wrong word to use in, in that instance, and I I don't I feel like I didn't use it correctly there. But you know that the what you're going to get at Anderson in those latter half of his contract is most likely not going to be what you're getting at the beginning part of that new contract. And um, even just I think too the way that the goal scoring has changed too for the Islanders, that's contingent on also the guys he's playing around and contingent on the fact that the team as a whole has struggled a bit last year to score goals this year obviously it was a huge thing where guys weren't scoring goals um and so when you have you know lee not scoring and then you also have eberle not scoring and you have bailey not scoring and you have all these these uh, bars not putting up as bovillier. many goals points. bovillier right it all kind of trickles around so everybody's numbers kind of i feel like took a dip um and it just wasn't just anders lee and so i don't necessarily know if it's necessarily hit the pressure on him as much as the pressure on everybody at certain points this year last year to put the puck in the back of the net because it became such a big talking point again this year especially because it was something we talked about constantly and the fact that the islanders just couldn't find the back of the net at times it seemed like
0: yeah completely agree all right so another one was the barclay center as bad as everyone says <laughs> i will let you go first on this but i mean i yes i have my own opinions but go ahead
1: i think this is the first one we disagree with right uh, because i i, I know i have it Pretty good feeling. I know what you're going to say about the Barclays Center, but I've, I've, I mean, it's a, it's a wacky building. It's, I will say, it's a place. When people ask, oh, you know, I want to go see an Islander game. You know, what would game would you recommend? I always say, you know, especially since the the split schedule, it was always been go see a game at the Coliseum. Don't see them play at Barclays Center, especially if it's like one of your first few times going to see them play, going to see a live game. It's not, it's not an experience you're going to come away going, wow, I really want to watch the sport. Um, that being said, I, I've always felt that the Barclays Center and the Islanders, it was, it was an interesting matchup from the beginning, and it was will be an interesting piece of history um, now that it's basically over. Um, because they're not, you know, however way the season comes back, they're not going back to Barclays Center this year. And obviously, they were supposed to play their last game against, I believe it was the Edmonton Oilers in March, like towards the end of March. I forget the exact date. Um, so... It's an interesting piece of history for the New York Islanders, but I never thought it was a terrible place because obviously it had the ice issues and had different quirks to it. But I thought that you could make the argument that those quirks um, were not bad. They were interesting, not necessarily bad, that they made things um, unique. Uh, obviously, yeah. seeing there, seeing that there was half, the, half a, a third of the ice that you couldn't see, or a third of the arena that couldn't see the ice... Um, certainly was a major flaw and something that so many people focused on when the Islanders moved into that building and they started playing games at that building. Um, and obviously that's a huge negative. And the scoreboard it was such a, it was such a talking point too, the fact that it was off center. But it was it was something that it was I guess you could say unique to Barclays Center and that I mean as much as it was off center and weird I never I never felt that it was something that really took away from the game experience. There are certain things that took away from the game experience, not being able to see half the ice is certainly something that takes away from the game experience.
0: <laughs> Just a little bit. Um,
1: but I think from a standpoint of when you look back and you say wow games at Barclay Center are interesting I think people look back more fondly and I think that if you look at the season especially that people kind of took to it and saw it for the novelty that it was that you know they knew it wasn't especially with the Belmont on the horizon now um, and things so much in such better footing and more concrete footing with the new arena that people, it seemed maybe we're more accepting of taking the trip, especially since there weren't as many games in Brooklyn this year as there had been in the past. Um, they were more open to going and watching a game there, and maybe it wasn't a sold-out crowd. But, um, you know, I think if you sat in most of the arena, you had an enjoyable time. The concession stands were fine. Um, you know, I think that the obviously the atmosphere wasn't the same as an Nassau Coliseum game or a lot of other NHL arenas, but it was still there. It was still something different. It was still fun, um, you know, kind of be there and, and see a game there, I think, for the most part. Um, you know, and obviously the surrounding community, the, you know, if you're of, of age and, um, you know, there's certainly more to do when you went to an Islander game pre or post game, uh, at Barclays center in Brooklyn, than there was at Nassau Coliseum. If you went to a game pre or post game, obviously the, the tailgating is uh, a big part of the Coliseum, uh, you know, experience, but you know, one thing that Barclays had, it, it was, you know, it kind of had that bar scene. So if you wanted to go catch a drink uh, after a game or before a game, you certainly had that option. Um, you know, and obviously the facilities for the Islanders weren't, weren't that bad either. I mean, the dressing room was beautiful. It's not something that a lot of people saw, uh, you know, outside of the media and obviously the team personnel, but the, you know, the dressing room facilities they had and, uh, the space that they had that was provided by Barclays Center was pretty nice. You can't say that, uh, from a media perspective, which is, you know, something that nobody outside of, you know, me and the other reporters care about. But from a media perspective, I don't think that the uh, workroom setup or anything like that was terrible. Uh, it was a bit more than you actually have at the NASA Coliseum, um, which was a nice kind of change of pace for us uh, on the on the you know media side. Uh, but it was quirky, you're right. It was quirky. But I felt like the quirkiness kind of added to it. And if there was anything that symbolizes the Islanders' history and the quirkiness <laughs> of the franchise, right, it's the fact that you have an arena that almost befits that that idea where it is as quirky as they come when it comes to a hockey hockey facility
0: yeah so for me i grew up and i live in the same house but i'm 15 minutes from the coliseum and obviously going to games when i was younger with the family it wasn't as expensive all that kind of stuff it was great and when they decided to move the only thing i could think of was i'd rather them go to barclays than go to kansas city or whatever they were thinking about relocating the team that was something that i really understood i Bad move. For, I didn't want to travel. I have to take the train, pay for that train ticket, wait on the train, all that kind of stuff. But for me, the most important thing was that the Islanders remained on the island mm-hmm. or close to it. So I just never felt like it was, you know, it was home. Nassau Coliseum, again, grew up there. And for my dad, especially someone I went to the games with all the time, he said, you know what? If you want to go to Barclays, go that. I'm not going to go. I, I don't want to do the train. I don't you look at a ticket. Let's say the tickets were a little cheaper at Barclays. Let's say they were 30 bucks, but then you got to pay 20 bucks round trip for the train. Mm-hmm. It just adds to the expenses, especially for me as a college student who comes home and wants to see as many hot games as possible. All right, well, it makes more sense for me to go to the Coliseum than spend the money and go to Barclays, despite whatever their record was at Barclays. They were very good at Barclays this year. Mm-hmm. And they've they've been pretty good at Barclays. It's it hasn't been like it hasn't really impacted the players, I think, as much as everybody expected it to. But at the same time, it's just definitely good that they went there looking back. Could have, I mean I'd rather not be rooting for a team in Kansas City. We're yeah. No, appreciate yeah. a team like that. So definitely. I just think that the way it went about it, it saved the Islander organization. It set them up for Belmont. Just things could have been changed. Like you said, there's nothing to do about the scoreboard. That's how it was built. It was, it was not right. built for hockey, you have to understand. It was built for basketball. So there's nothing you could do after that. The Islanders decided to go there. The management decided that was the best move. And it worked out because they're still here.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, one of the fascinating things, too, and I hope somebody, you know, if it's not me or someone does something where they look back at this at some point, further point in history because I, I think what people will find out about the move from long island to brooklyn uh, which i think at the beginning everyone anticipated is something that could work that could be uh something that was a successful endeavor right because the nets had moved from new jersey to brooklyn in such a way that um i mean it was looked at by sports executives outside of hockey as one of the most successful rebrandings for a franchise ever um And something that I think other places tried to kind of uh, do themselves when it came to to a move like that. But that being said, the uh, the flip side of that is always going to be that the Barclays Center people I don't think ever really understood the um, hockey culture as much as they should have once the move really started to facilitate itself. Um, I mean, obviously, there are so many little things that I think um, both sides kind of did wrong and that. If you look back someday, the stories behind what some of these decisions and, you know, how these things played out will be fascinating. Because, I mean, the decisions to change the goal horn, um, when you look at it now, is, I think, quite a very a fun and would have been a really cool ch- change. Um, and the way that fans reacted, because everything was changing, um, you know, they didn't, they were so dug into Things staying as the same as much as possible, and I thought it was such a silly thing to kind of dig your heels in. Um, you know, the idea that the Barclays Center were going to pull Sparky um, as the uh, mascot, and Sparky for years, I think, had been derided among, especially among some of the more hardcore, longtime diehard fans, as kind of a silly mascot. Um, all of a sudden, we're coming around and the idea of they want to keep Sparky because it was, you know, something that Barclays doesn't want, so naturally they want it. It, it was just a, but uh, it, but then there was there were the crazy things where. You know, Brett Yormark and some of a lot of the tone deaf comments he made about the organization as far as people not being able to see a third of the rank and then saying they can watch on their phones. And, um you know, it was just such a it's such a fascinating time in history, too, I think, which kind of um adds some of the quirkiness to it, because it just fits everything that's happened in the Islanders history uh, since the cup years in the 80s is that. Um, things are just so crazy. I mean, I mean, you're talking about an organization that was nearly bought by a guy who didn't have any money to pay for an NHL organization. You're talking about uh, a team that, uh, you know, they, you know, they moved to a building that wasn't built for hockey and they, uh, there was this idea that there was going to be some ability to kind of create this new fan base in Brooklyn that just never materialized because of a lot of things that did and didn't happen. Um, and it's just it's a fascinating time. So maybe that's, too, where my kind of interest and kind of love affair with the Barclays Center comes from, too, because I think it's just such an interesting time in Islanders history um, that a lot of things were maybe attempted, maybe weren't attempted, and some things that could have been really cool didn't didn't pan out. Um, and then a lot of miscalculations on, on certain spots, too. So I, I think that's kind of what adds to it, too. But also, like I said, I don't think it's as bad as everyone made it out to be, especially if you're only going a couple times a year. It's not that terrible, especially towards the end. Right. And I think there was only about 13 games or something like that at Barclay yeah. Center. So it made it much more manageable if you were going to go see a game and you said, all right, I, 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 you know, I have budgeted this X amount of money for sporting events and concerts and stuff like that. And, you know, you can get a decently cheap ticket at Barclay Center. Um, you know, that's worth the trip to go see the Islanders and when you're most likely also paying the extra for the train tickets, like you said, or going out to a bar or something before or after a game. So, um, you know, I think, like I said, especially at the end, it it made it much more manageable and palatable for people to go there and see a game with such a a smaller number there.
0: Yeah. I mean, it comes down to one thing and it comes down to if you're truly an Islander fan, you're going to go and root for your team regardless of the circumstances. The players had no say over this. The coach had no say over this. This is your team. So, for the fans that decided that they weren't going to go support Barclays, I think that's a disservice to the team that you're you're representing. You're if you're a loyal fan, you want to go see him play. I mean, as much as I didn't like the Barclays Center, if I had fifteen dollars in my pocket and there was an Islander game, I'm going to that Islander game. You're not stopping me. Yeah, so, I feel like that's a yeah. whole
1: that's a whole other. Uh, adage to it too, but I also don't think that's fair because, I mean, people are going to spend their anta- entertainment dollars um, the way they're going to spend them, and if, uh, you know, you've, you, if you if you had you're stuck, not stuck, but if you're used to this way, um, going to a game, driving 15-20 minutes to a game, you know, 30-40 minutes at most, um, if you're coming from different parts of Long Island, um, it, it's a tough change, and it's a tough financial change because it changes the entire scope of how you go about your game day i mean especially if you're taking your kids or family or something that's a very expensive endeavor uh to go to barclays center uh to buy train tickets to most you know buy snacks and stuff on the concession stand or get something to eat before the game that's a very expensive day um and not to say that the coliseum is cheap by any stretch of the imagination um but it is a little bit more of a manageable thing to do going to nassau coliseum than taking a train and especially on um, bigger games um, where that becomes a, a much more hassle than going to a restaurant or something in the city or Brooklyn or getting snacks on the concession stand, which are very, very pricey when it comes to Barclays Center uh, food and drink options. So it, 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 I certainly don't think it's necessarily fair to... Um, say that you know that it's a disservice to the team because people support the team in different ways and um you know whether that's it's true. going one game a year or whether it's going 41 games a year um it's it's tough to do so i i, I don't necessarily agree with that. i think that's, no, that's a that's, that's a that's tough fine. thing to say
0: yeah let me let me clarify a little bit <laughs> obviously yeah obviously that that um it, money aspect is a big problem especially if you let's say you live out east on long island getting to barclay center is tough yes but if you do have the financial income and you want want to go to the games and do all that stuff, I think that not going because you don't like the arena. Let's say financially you're independent. You're fine financially. But the reason you don't want to go is because you hate the move and you're against that. I just think – this. I mean, yes, you can support the team any way you want. I just think that – to I just I want to be there for the players and I know that some of them complained about you know you have a practice facility on Long Island you know you got to take the train to go to the games or drive in you know I just I feel bad for them too especially because they're the ones that work their butt off to provide what we want to go see and all that kind of stuff and I just I just wanted especially when you go to the games let's say it wasn't a sold-out crowd it's tough like you said it's tough to bring a family and spend that kind of money and that's why it's not as packed but I think that Yeah, there are definitely better ways for Barclays to handle the Islanders and understand truly the Islanders fan base.
1: I will say also one thing you mentioned, the players, um, you know, having to go in and practice. They practice a lot. One thing that I always felt was a misstep was the fact that they didn't the the team tried to play at both sides. And, um, you know, looking back to it, whether it's easier, easy to say now that, um, you know, trying to keep a lot of your footing on Long Island while still having a a footprint in Brooklyn uh, was the wrong decision. Um, It was tough to say that one way or the other was going to work then, but my feeling since the beginning was always that if the islands were going to play in Brooklyn, if the Brooklyn thing was going to work, they needed to embrace Brooklyn as much as they embraced Long Island, and I think they did that at part in the start, you know, you had Matt Martin doing certain events there, when the MTV um, VMAs was there, they had him doing a, a, a live digital stream uh pre-show with with one of the Brooklyn's uh, Barclays Center hosts um you had some player signings at the models across the street um you had Cal Clutterbuck on uh, I forget what show it was it wasn't it wasn't the uh daily show but it was one of those spin-offs from the daily show um and kind of cu- trying to embrace the Brooklyn community um and I think the, the what the Islanders could have done is keep doing that um I think yeah. that when you put a lot of those guys in there and kind of create that community atmosphere you have you create help create create what you had on long island uh, and obviously that was tough to one to keep that existing fan base and a lot of them were from long island and you know i'm sure they wouldn't appreciate being kind of just thrown to the wayside for people in brooklyn but at the same time the re- you know you're trying to embrace this new community and this new atmosphere you kind of got to go full steam ahead to with it too so again it's it's like i said it's such a fascinating time in an islander history when you look back at it but uh certainly something that could have been done even having the practice facility somewhere in Brooklyn or encouraging the players to move closer to Brooklyn, um, you know, which might have been a tough sell for those guys who especially had roots down all out on Long Island at that point.
0: Yeah, I will end with one thing: the bathroom lines at Barclays <laughs> ten times better than at the Coliseum. But that depends
1: right. on where you go. It depends on when yeah, you that's go. Yeah,
0: it's true. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the women's lines I can't speak for, but yeah, <laughs> let's move on. All right, so we have Soroka news. We are waiting his arrival to join the New York Islanders. And a move that Lulemario made initially before the season was let's bring in Varlamov, someone who has a connection with Sorokin, to entice him to come. So the question for you, Christian, we'll start off with you: is how much did that signing impact Sorokin's decision to join the Islanders?
1: Yeah, you know, I don't think we'll ever really know the the definitive answer to that. Um, I know it was brought up when when um, Varlamov was signed during that free agency day when Lou spoke to the media over a conference call. Uh, I forget who the reporter was, but someone did ask him about that, and he kind of, in, in kind of typical new fashion, kind of sidestepped the actual question and answering it. Um, I think that was the whole idea from speculation. The idea of him bringing Varlamov into the full was that he obviously had the pre-existing relationship with Sorokin. He already had, you know, they have a similar agents. You know, they, they know each other a bit, um, and they ha- certainly have set up that mentor-mentee role that would be good for, for both players, I think. Um, especially for an, a goaltender, the Islanders are expected to kind of be the next their next guy. Uh, who You know, something we've talked about a lot in the past uh, was the fact that the Islanders don't have a great history of developing goaltenders, really, since the 80s. Um, and so the idea, I think, part of it certainly had to do with the fact that they wanted Varlamov in the fall because it certainly helps bring Sorokin here, gives him another... Uh, reason to come here other than obviously wanting to be in the NHL and this, this being the team that has his NHL rights. Um, but bringing in a guy who, you know, can kind of step in that role as a mentor and help him in that transition is certainly a huge factor to it too. But at the same time, the Islanders uh, apparently had always had their eye on Varlamov. Lou Amaral was a guy who yes. seemed like he wanted him from, for even before, um, this situation where you where they were, a team was really confident that uh, Sorokin was coming in, um, you know, last year. So I, I think it played a part into it. I don't know if I know if that was the whole reason they brought him in because it's pretty well documented now that Lou really had his eye on Varlamov even before I think this thought came into his head that this was a guy that his goaltending coaches could work with and really turn into a, a great goaltender. Um, and obviously, you saw that do, they them do that with Thomas Grice and, and Robin Leonard last year. Um, and now you saw that a bit with Semyon Vrloov, who had a pretty good season for the most part for the New York Islanders until the season was put on pause.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think the move was enticing. I mean, you have a guy in Sorokin who, who could see from Shosturgin with the New York Rangers that you come over, it's a culture shock. And to have a guy that, uh, from Russia, the same country, speak the same language, knows he's been in the NHL, he's a veteran, could definitely, you know, be a crutch that Sorokin's definitely going to lean on if, if need be. I think with the four-year deal that Varlamov got, that obviously keeps them as a tandem until Sorokin, which we assume will take over as the pure the pure number one guy. But I just, we'll ne- like you said, we'll never know the full extent of their conversations and their relationship unless, you know, they talk about it more when he does arrive. I think it was enticing, but I, yeah, I agree that I don't think that he's, that's the sole reason. I think the sole reason is after his last contract with CSKA Moscow ended, he decided, well, I had a really good season. I've had really great seasons. It's my time to shine now in the NHL. Piggybacking off of that, we saw Robin Leonard not be brought back by the team instead of going with Varlanov. Do you think it was worth re signing Robin Leonard, who had a great season, a great comeback story, and now this year he's been great with Chicago and Vegas?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly that was the whole thing there is is a very interesting situation because something I think clearly happened between the Islanders and, and Leonard uh, somewhere along the line as far as him coming back and as far as him not coming back. And they, whether it was some sort of miscommunication or whatever the case may be, it just seemed like the it, someone there was a miscommunication or something was off that the, it just wasn't going to be in the cards, especially as it dragged on and on and on and on. Um, and again, I think it kind of goes back to, too, Varlamov was always looked at by Islanders management, Lou Lamorello, and apparently some of the other um, people on his staff as someone that really could come in and help the Islanders. So I think that, in hindsight, I, I can't tell you if that there's much of a difference now at this point between Varlamov and um, and um, Robin Leonard as far as their stats go um, and where, where they would be as far as where the New York Islanders would be. Um, I, I think Leonard obviously has a little bit better numbers right now just um, because of where he's been playing. But I, is is it a guarantee that he comes back and he's the same Robin Leonard that you had last year, where he was exactly. um, lights out? It's, it's tough to say, but I, I think in that situation, if you want to say from the start of the year when, when we found out that Marlomoff was coming in and Leonard wasn't coming back, I think the debate was, is it the fact that, you know, do you go with the potentially turning another guy around um, who's coming off a, another rough season? Or do you go with the guy that you know now a little bit um, and has the potential to even if he takes a step back, he's still going to be a very good goaltender, which he's shown that he gets, he is you know, between his, his stints now in Chicago and, and Vegas. Um, it's it's a tough question, too. And obviously the emotional factor for Robin Leonard, because yeah. he became such a big advocate for a lot of things off the ice and, the, uh, you know, such a great story for the New York Islanders, you know, being a Vesna finalist, helping. Um, you know be a part of that tandem that won that won the organization the Jennings Trophy for the you know the best goaltending numbers and Obviously the story that came along with it his, his uh, admission publicly of the stuff that he battled through uh, To kind of get back into the into the league to get back to where he was and to being so honestly that obviously was something that Resonated with a lot of people on Long Island uh, and the fan base here So he re- you know, he really struck a chord and really struck Um, A connection with them, who, you know, he's still very vocal about the support and the appreciation he's had to the Islanders organization and the fan base here. So there's a lot of emotional aspects to it, too. um, Aside from just the on ice question of, do you bring back a guy who most likely is not going to be able to replicate the numbers he had, but he'll still be very, very, very good. Um, or do you want to go with a guy who the Islanders brass really had eyed for, for a long time? It's, it's an interesting question because uh, it, it's tough to say at this point, what, what's the better option Are the Islanders any much better because they have Robin Leonard and net over, um, semi on who's done a really great job this season too. Um, it doesn't change the fact that the Islanders haven't, haven't been scoring as much. Um, it doesn't change the fact that the Islanders had a lot of injuries as much, too. The one thing I think that we kind of get lost in this discussion is the fact that the Islanders were very, very healthy for the last year that Robin Leonard yes. was there, which makes it easier, makes his job easier. Um, so Varlamov, is kinda, and Varlamov and Grice have been put in a position where they are having to deal with a team not only that's you know struggling to score, which has kind of been emblematic for the Islanders for a, a long time, but also a team that has really dealt with a lot of injuries to crucial players on the blue line. And that makes their jobs, um, especially when you have some younger blood that is still developing and learning, makes their jobs a little bit harder. So I I don't know if it would have made that much of a difference at this point.
0: Yeah, so you bring up Grice, and that's a good point, too, is Grice's play was masked last year by the play of Robin Leonard. And now we're seeing Robin Leonard's not here anymore, and we're seeing when Grice struggles, now that's, that's under a magnifying glass. Because, you know, he's splitting time with Varlamov, or he's not playing that much anymore because of his struggles in the second half. But for me... Leonard meant so much to this fan base and we don't know exactly what went wrong. Leonard says that it was a miscommunication where he wanted terms. He was okay that it was only a, a one-year deal. He came back to the Islanders and they had already moved on. And like you said, I knew that Lamarillo had been scouting Varlamov. That was definitely something that he's talked about. But the question is, was Leonard's season last year a fluke season? He goes 25, 13 and 0, 2.13 goals against average, nine thirty save percentage, five shutouts. Is that a season like he could replicate? replicating the short answer is, No, probably not. I mean, you have adrenaline going off that. I mean, we saw with other teams. You look at the Hamburglar with the Ottawa Senators, or Devin Dubnik when he arrived in Minnesota and how he carried that team to the playoffs. You know, those guys. I mean, uh, the Hamburgers and the Miners right now. Devin Dubnik has struggled. And it's just it's just crazy to see. I mean, you look at Varlamov, he's 1914 and six this year, two point six two goals against average, nine fourteen save. And like you said, the islanders last season was very were very healthy. This season not so much, and that definitely takes a toll on the goaltending and the defensive system that Barry Trotz tries to build around. And also the other thing, which people have talked about a lot, was that Robin Leonard was so good because of the system he was in. And we look at his stats this season. He's got a 9.20 save percentage, 2.89 goals against average. Uh, That's split between Chicago and Vegas. And the question becomes, is Leonard really that good? Or was he based off a great system when he's in it? And he's shown that, yes, the stats aren't as good as that season with the Islanders last year. But his stats are still pretty good. And I think that if it was over a million dollars or two million dollars, bringing him back, I mean... It seemed like a no-brainer to me. I thought he was a perfect fit with the Islanders, his teammates. He loved the fan base. The fan base loved him. He was such an easy guy to root for because of his story and all that kind of stuff. So I think for me, it was over a million, two $2 million. You should have brought him back. But then it, it all goes back to, well, was this Varlamov move that important to getting Sorokin? And yes. yes yeah. We will never know that. If, let's say, Varlamov didn't have a say in Sorokin coming, the, I think Leonard has to be back just for— what he's done and what he what he could have carried over i know there's always that chance i wrote an article today actually about leonard the chance of a relapse and you don't want to talk about that you don't want that to be a subject of discussion but it's a lingering thought in the minds of general managers having to make financial decisions based on a guy like that you see that does he deserve a long-term deal Yes, I guess his play says he does, but at the same time, that's not only thing you can consider. And even a short-term deal, if Leonard had a really bad year this year, now he's under contract, let's say, two to three years. And if he has a really bad year and doesn't get back to that point, you miss out on a guy like Varlamov, and maybe the Islanders organization takes a step back, and you just don't want that. So I could see why Varlamov was a safer option, even though he's had some rough years. But for me, if it was over a couple of million dollars, Robin Leonard was the heart and soul of this team and of this organization and definitely meant a lot to everybody that saw him play.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly, that's another point of conversation to the whole, whole thing, because obviously that's something that everyone is very well aware of now. Um, as far as his past, um, off the ice issue so it certainly becomes part of the conversation as well and um you know it, it's hard to know how much that played into it if it if at all I mean if it if it did I don't, I don't think you know the Islanders would have signed him in the first place so who knows at that point um but it, you know we'll never really know the full story of what happened between Robin Leonard and the Islanders organization and obviously the thought process between Varlamov and his connection with uh Sorokin
0: but definitely yes if Sorokin comes over and has a Tremendous career. You look back and you go, Lula Murillo, congratulations. Great move. If it was intended or not, it worked out. Take the credit and move on. Uh, the last debate topic we'll talk about recently, Mark Shifley of the Winnipeg Jets came out and said that he believes Matt Barzal in a few years will be leading the NHL in scoring. Christian, we've talked about if this is a guy that is a superstar or on the verge of being a superstar. Do you think that he will lead the league in a couple of years in scoring?
1: uh I, I I don't know i i mean I think it'll really depend on the team that he has around him and the players that he has around him I don't think that um you know right now that that's seems like it's going to be in the cards at least at the moment like i said but uh I mean he certainly has the potential to be a really good player in this league and obviously you know a guy who wins the calder, uh, you know called a trophy a couple of years ago certainly isn't is not is not a schlub. and and Matt Matt, uh, Matt Barzall obviously has become such a big cornerstone piece of the Islanders organization the Islanders offensive weaponry that um he's he has the opportunity to to be a, a very talented scorer in this league a very um high scorer in this league it's just do I see him leading the league in in the in a few years I I don't know but again you know Scheifele also has played Barzal, um you know kind of has that eye that you know we as uh, as you know watching from the outside don't necessarily have so maybe there's something there that he's seeing that we just don't um and it's certainly big praise from from a fellow uh player like that who who certainly has the pedigree to, to you know he's a very talented player in his own right I and mean, he certainly has the right and the eye to evaluate other talents so um You know, it's it's tough to say if that uh, will be the case in a couple years. I don't think that it will, but I think he'll be a very talented player in a couple years, um, even more so than he is already.
0: Yeah, the year he won the Calder, in 85 games, uh, 85 points, excuse me, in 82 games played, this year he's got 19 goals, 41 assists. And again, high praise from a guy like Mark Scheifele. I'm pretty sure Mark Scheifele is actually a guy who memorizes stats. He knows crazy stats about a lot of players in the league. He definitely sees it from a different point of view, but we look at around the league and we got, you know, top and we have dry McDavid one and two from the Edmonton Oilers. You have Pasternak and Panarin and dry McDavid, 110 points, 97 points, 43 goals and 34 goals. You look at Pasternak and Panarin, you know, they both have 94 points, 48 goals, 32 goals. And you just think that Barzal, like you said, it's about the talent that's around him. I do not think he will be leading the, uh, the league in scoring in a couple of years unless the Islanders go out and get someone of high caliber to go around a uh, sniper, like someone that will bury off his passing. Cause you see Barzal is not a scorer; He's a playmaker. And while that could easily lead the league, you could see a guy rack up 50, 60, 70 assists like that. But it's only going to happen if you have guys on his wings that are going to bury for him. And I mean, definitely leading the league. You look at on McDavid, it's not just them. It's not, it's not like a wing Gretzky where, He's that good, where he's just better than everyone else, and he could do it all and get scoring and do all that kind of stuff. You gotta have the team around them to be good. And Dreisalder, McDavid, I guarantee, would credit their teammates. I just think for Barzal, he could be the great best player he's gonna be on this Islander team. But without the the backup support, he's he can't lead the league in scoring. you look at like other players like Ovechkin. You look at the guys on his line. You look at like we said, Dreisalder, McDavid, Pasternak, Panarin, even the Rangers. You got you just got a lot of talent around these guys, which makes it a lot easier for them. And I think Barzal, we, we catch Barzal trying really hard out there, maybe sometimes trying too hard because he is that he has more skill than everybody else in that team, and the team knows that, and they want him to have the puck and do all that kind of stuff. I just think that a move definitely needs to be made sooner or later if they want to lead the league in scoring. And it's not a bad thing if he doesn't. I I've, He cares more, and I guarantee most people care more, is if the Islanders are a successful franchise. If he's going to be a top player on the team, but not hit, like, you know, 70, 80 points every year, but he's going to be a difference maker, then so be it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think that's with, like, a lot of hockey players. They, the ultimate goal is to win a championship and have a successful franchise uh, for the extent of the time that they're there. Um, obviously, the big question also becomes with Barzal, is he still an Islander, you know, a couple years from now? So that's I think that's also a big factor into it, too, because there are some people who don't think Matt Barzal is going to end up resigning with the Islanders. Um, which would be, uh, you know, a huge turning point for the franchise for Barzal, depending on wherever he may end up at that point. Um, but that's also kind of part of the conversation that when you're talking a couple years down the line, that's part of the dynamics. Is Barzal still an Islander? And if he's not, where is he? Where is he playing? That this may change the narrative or may change the the his uh, ability to reach that number or lead the league in you know scoring or whatnot or or not. So I think that's part of the conversation as well.
0: Well, thank you, Christian, as always, for joining us. This is definitely fun. You know, again, more quarantine talk. We got debates. We'll <laughs> definitely have some more to talk about next week. But again, thank you so much for joining, and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. And that was Christian Arnold of Islander Insight. You could follow him on Twitter at C underscore Arnold one You could also follow me, Stefan Rosner, S-T-E-F-E-N underscore R-O-S-N-E-R, on Twitter for more Islanders updates. Thanks to everybody tuning in. We really appreciate it. We hope everyone is safe and healthy, and we look forward to some hockey real soon.